Toledo, Ohio, February 25th. Toledo has a Jack the Clubber. The second mysterious assault upon a woman was reported to the police today. Both cases appear to be the work of a maniac with no motive other than a desire to molest women. Miss Sophia Buck was assaulted last Sunday evening by a man who struck her several times over the head but made no attempts at robbery or criminal assault. The second assault was made at 11 o'clock this morning upon Mrs. Minnie Haynes, a widow. The woman was rendered unconscious by the blow. I haven't been able to find out anything else about Toledo's so-called Jack the Clubber. And though the main events here take place two decades later, the story of the mystery assailant provides an eerie bit of foreshadowing for what was to come. This is episode 17, The Toledo Clubber. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. This episode was extremely difficult to put together. At times I felt almost like the detectives must have felt like it at at that time, with an almost endless number of names and leads to look up and all that. And in addition to that, this case was insanely well documented, which makes it all the more unbelievable that it's not a more widely known story than it is. I mean, it's certainly known to certain people, But it's not famous. The victims' names are spelled countless different ways, and they're given vastly different ages and different accounts of the crimes, which can make it hard to try to determine what's the facts of the case. The first appearance of the man who would become known as the Toledo Clubber came on May 24th, when Mrs. Emma Hatfield, 48, was attacked as she passed an alleyway. Her attacker dragged her into the alleyway and beat her over the head with some sort of bludgeoning instrument, thought to be a hammer or an axe, according to some accounts. Many axe murders were committed with the blunt end of the weapon, if anyone's thinking that sounds illogical. She was also slashed and hacked with some sort of bladed instrument. Her clothes were shredded, cuts and bruises covered her body, and her skull was fractured in several places. She gave police only a partial description of the man, on May 27th admitting that she knew her assailant, but declined to identify him. After spending two and a half months in the hospital fading in and out of consciousness, she finally succumbed to her injuries on September 9th. If only she had identified her attacker, the police could have been saved a lot of trouble. Three months later, A 26-year-old mother of two, named Lydia Baumgartner, had some sort of argument with her husband, according to her sister, Marie Geckel. 
Lydia had left her home on Shirley Avenue, nearly two miles away, following after her husband, who had stalked out after the argument. Mr. Baumgartner returned home at about 11 o'clock, but Lydia was not with him. She was found on August 21st, lying near a house at 834 Door Street, which is now a vacant lot adjacent to Smith Park. She had been bashed over the head and then was slashed and stabbed, her throat slit to such an extent that her head was nearly severed. On October 20th, 50-year-old Mrs. Frank Hall was attacked, again beaten over the head with some sort of blunt instrument, her nose broken, and her skull fractured. The attacker lunged at Mrs. Hall from behind a tree near her home. Her husband said that doctors thought it would be months before she would leave her bed, and that it would take years for her to fully recover, if she ever did. When she regained her faculties, she said she had caught a vague glimpse of a tall, shadowy figure. On November 16th, a telephone company employee named Wilma Hoadley, who was 24, said she was walking on 20th Street near Monroe Street intersection when a giant lunged from behind a tree and clubbed her over the head, opening a bleeding wound. She managed to dodge a second blow, and then the mystery man fled when an automobile's headlights illuminated the area. The assailant's assaults were beginning to escalate exponentially. Three months until the next attack, then two, and finally one. But investigators checking into the Hoadley attack had no idea of the frenzy that lurked in it Toledo night. The very next night, 31-year-old Frida Draheim was walking along Tecumseh Street when a man attacked her with a bludgeon. Like the night before, he was scared away when a car approached. Miss Draheim was admitted to Mercy Hospital with a fractured skull and two deep scalp wounds. A 38-year-old nurse named Cora Batchelor, other accounts put her at 60, another employee of the same telephone company as, as Will Mahoudley, which may be significant, was attacked while on the way to visit a neighbor on Colfax Street on November 19th. The man had grabbed Mrs. Batchelor, ironic name, isn't it, by the arm, and then when she protested, he only laughed and clubbed her several times. She fell to the ground, and the man vanished. By this point, the fear and hysteria springing from the attacks had caused many people in Toledo to leave their porch lights on. Most previous attacks had occurred on darkened suburban streets, but Colfax Street was well lit. The attacker was also apparently becoming more confident in his ability to remain unseen. Most of the attacks had taken place in the same area of West Toledo. At this point, Chief Harry Jennings of the police department, already dispatching a number of officers to the western areas of the city in, in an attempt to guard against the mystery attacker, said that he would accept an offer of aid by the American Legion. Over a hundred ex-soldiers would help the police patrol the murder zone, and he likewise said he would accept the aid of Sheriff Emmert of Lucas County, who offered the loan of several deputies to the police. And the patrols were further bolstered by a number of railroad detectives the murder zone being within several blocks of railroad tracks. Even some citizens offered to loan the police their cars to aid in the patrols. As one account had it, the West End tomorrow night will take on the appearances of an armed camp. Police will walk the streets with shotguns ready to shoot. It was noted in the following days 
that no attacks had taken place after patrols were bolstered in the areas of the attacker Hornet. The patrols had picked up seven individuals for suspicious activity, and Chief Jennings speculated that the clubber may have been one of these. I suspect the reason for the lack of activity on his part was either that he had, indeed, been arrested, or that he was simply spooked by the size of the patrols and the lack of hunting grounds in the well-lit neighborhoods. By November 24th, the publicity connected with the Clubber case had begun to lead to copycats. In Akron, Mrs. Adeline Iyer said a man emerged from behind a tree and chased her up the street toward her house, brandishing a club and threatening to beat her if she stopped running. Her husband emerged from the house in response to her screams and overpowered the man, who he held there until the police arrived. One also appeared in Norwood, which was a suburb of Cincinnati. On the 28th, 18-year-old Aileen Thomas was attacked near her home by a clubber who struck her over the head with such force that he broke his bludgeon in two. This assault was also witnessed by a 10-year-old boy, who claimed he saw the same man loitering by a church in Norwood the next day. On December 1st, a 50-year-old woman named Margaret Smith was also attacked near her home. Neither Thomas nor Smith were seriously injured. Another clubber made his appearance that same day at the opposite end of Lake Erie, in LaSalle, New York. Ruth Wells Miller of 227 Belden Avenue was struck over the head by a man who emerged from behind a bush near her home, struck her once on the head, and vanished. Ruth crawled to the back porch of her home, where she was found by other members of her family. She was in and out of consciousness for at least a day. But back to November 28th. That day, a man carrying a bloody hammer was found in a wooded area near Holland. He fought with Stanley Novak and Charles Pizzoni, the two hunters who brought him to the police department, laughing all the while with, quote, the same sneering laugh the, cl the clubber is supposed to have. The man was wearing three coats and three pairs of pants and claimed that he had been killing chickens with his hammer. He said he had been living in the woods for about a week, since the 21st, and the increased patrols, coincidentally. He was found to be Robert August, an escaped mental patient at the Toledo State Hospital. August was apparently a, a pseudonym, however. Cora Batchelor tentatively identified August as the man who had attacked her, but Detective Louis J. Hawes disagreed. He said he did not believe the man to be the clubber on the basis that August had a mustache, and none of the victims had mentioned a mustache. Mrs. Frank Hall, too, however, felt that August could have been the man. She said that she thought the man who attacked her may have been wearing several suits of clothes similarly to the escaped lunatic. He seemed to be bulging and padded, in her words. Neither Hoadley nor Draheim could identify the man. On December 11th, there was a brief panic that the clubber had returned to Toledo when L Louise Washburn, 18, was attacked at the entrance to the University of Toledo. Louise had no sooner gotten out of the car in which she was driven to the university when a man, approximately 5 feet tall and 150 pounds, grabbed her by the throat. She fell, and upon arising was, was choked again. She eluded her pursuer, who told her to get her books and go to school. I'm not entirely certain why this assault was ever thought to be the handiwork of the clubber, as it seems to be completely different. The description of the man as well 
is of an individual considerably smaller than the clubber was usually said to be. This attacker was identified a week later as 22-year-old Joseph Luska. Luska was held by police at request of relatives, who say he is demented. About a month later, on January 19th, it was again feared that the clubber had returned. This time, the body of 40-year-old Mary Handley, often misreported as Mamie, sister of a fire captain, was discovered by Maddie Sproul, again, sometimes reported as Sterl, lying in a small yard between her home and neighbors on Woodland Avenue, solidly within the murder zone to find a previous autumn. Handley's body had been found near to her own home. In the by now familiar fashion, her head was battered and her body covered with bruises. She had been gagged with strips of cloth ripped from her own clothing, and her body had been draped in a raincoat. Marks on the ground indicate that she had been killed, or at least attacked, on the sidewalk and dragged to the yard between the two houses. It was noted that Handley's body was still warm, indicating that death had occurred literally moments before she was found by Mrs. Sproul, yet no one had heard anything. The coroner later concluded that the head wounds indicated that she had been first struck down by a blow from behind, and that then as she lay on the ground she was struck several more times from the front, apparently by someone leaning over the body. Detective Lewis Hawes, mentioned during the tentative identification of Robert August as the attacker, felt that Handley was murdered by someone familiar with her address or location of her home. Personally, I would say a similar idea applies equally to most of the victims, as several were attacked quite near their home. Either the attacker laid in wait for a lone woman to emerge from a house, or similarly to most serial offenders and killers, he stalked his victims prior to launching an attack. It was found the next day that the story of Mary Handley's brothers, that she had been at home the night previous, was disproven. Two men, named Vesper K. Orwiller and Charles Warnack, were found, who said they had brought the woman back from nearby Whitford Corners, a neighborhood along Whiteford Road. Orwiller said he was Mary Handley's lover, and had been for seven years. The two men were brought in for further questioning, but both were later released. The brothers also revealed that a man had been caught peeping in windows that same day. Detective Joseph W. Delahorny speculated that there were two separate criminals active in Toledo, a clubber and a slasher. How then do we account for Hatfield and Baumgartner, both of whom seem to have been attacked by both individuals? Occam's razor would seem to suggest that it was one offender equally comfortable with two weapons rather than two offenders working together. 26-year-old Lily Dale Croy, a teacher at the Gunkel School, was taken in night class at the University of Toledo on October 25th. She failed to return home that night, and several hours later, her stepbrother, J.W. Weist, discovered her mostly nude body on the grounds of the Washington School at about 1.30 in the morning. Time of death was estimated at about 11.30 p.m. As usual in the crimes, her head was smashed. Her hair was stretched out as if she had been dragged, similarly to Mary Handley. Apparently, she had initially been attacked on the other side of the school and dragged back to where she was found. But unusually for the clubber attacks, she had apparently also been sexually assaulted. 
On the 27th, James A. Harrison, a janitor at an apartment building nearby to where Croy's body had been found, discovered a heavy seven-pound iron bar covered with blood and human hair on a trash heap at the building where he was employed. Dr. C.L. McKibben, resident of the building, and then the police were notified. Investigating the bar, police found that a man in the neighborhood had hailed a cab the night of the 25th and asked to be taken to a downtown hotel. At the hotel, some blood on the man's coat was noticed. That night, John P. Maloney, night watchman at the St. Anthony's Catholic Church, found a pocketbook that was confirmed to have belonged to Louis Delacroix. All the contents of the purse were present, except for the cash, all of which had been taken. Detectives were also assigned to attend the funeral of Miss Croy on the 28th, looking to get some clue on the slaying, and as we now know, there may have been a possibility that the killer himself may have attended the funeral, as serial killers often can't resist gloating over their crimes. While the teacher was being buried, another lead was being followed, a clothing label discovered by a student at the Washington School where Miss Croy's body had been found. Found under a tree, it seemed to have been torn off during a struggle, and bore the trademark of a clothier in a northwestern Ohio town. On the evening of the 26th, the body of Mrs. George Alden, 48, was discovered by her husband lying in the dining room. Her clothing had been ripped similarly to all the clubber's victims, but again, unlike anyone else, she had been shot in the mouth. It was discovered that several neighbors thought they heard a gunshot at about 9 a.m. that morning. George Auden was quickly ruled out as a suspect, as it was discovered he had not left his workplace all day. The police theorized that Lily's killer may have sought refuge in the Alden home, and shot Mrs. Alden when he was discovered. Back on came the lights, and away went the killer. Permanently this time. The lack of any definitive resolution to the Clubber case, however, was not without consequence. Several city officials resigned, and following this, a petition was circulated asking for the recall of Toledo Mayor Fred G. Mary and Police Chief Harry Jennings. The chief was replaced, but the mayor managed to hang on to his office for a year. In any serial offender or killer case, hysteria and fear can lead to a number of unrelated or even completely fabricated cases. The case of the Toledo Clubber was certainly no exception, some of the incidents reminding me almost of the, complete, of the almost completely fabricated Halifax Slasher case. On October 20th, 1925, during the first wave of Clubber panic, Mrs. J.G. Brown claimed to have been attacked while taking out her garbage. After only a brief bit of investigation, this incident was discounted. Mrs. Brown had previously suffered a head injury, and her behavior had been erratic for years. Another supposed victim that same day, named Pauline Winover, police determined, had not been injured at all, making it doubtful that she even encountered the man in question. The next day, a girl named Viola Chatham was also attacked in a restaurant in Union Station, her clothing torn. A policeman named Moss and a railroad detective fought with the man, but he escaped. Louise Brown was also attacked that night and admitted to the hospital. 
She was discharged two days later. Doctors expressed the opinion that she had been struck with a sandbag or something similar, rather than the more rigid bludgeon as was used on the others. That night, too, an 18-year-old girl named Lorraine Braun was found lying unconscious in the middle of the street. An absence of bruises to the head, but two other portions of her body, led police to suspect she had been thrown from a car rather than clubbed. On November 11, 1926, a man in Woodville jumped from behind some bushes, knocked a 16-year-old girl named Lucille Hummel unconscious, dragged her under a bridge, and was engaged in tearing her clothes from her body when two passers-by, Gus Blasey and Willie Leaking, heard suspicious noises and looked under the bridge. The man fled. A young man named Clifford Gardner was also arrested in Toledo on November 15th of that year, charged with assaulting Mrs. Edna Miller. Miller was emerging from a car in the front of her house when Gardner jumped out of the darkness and brandished a club at her. She screamed and dodged the blow, the young man in pursuit, futilely swinging again. Two pedestrians captured Gardner. On November 21, 1926, a severed pair of human legs was discovered on a farm near Toledo. Then on the 24th, a head was found on Matzinger Road. Other body parts were found along Reynolds Road on the 26th. Coroner Charles Hensler determined that at least the legs and the head had come from two different individuals. These dismembered parts were connected with the clubber case, but for what reason, I'm not really sure. Another Toledo beating victim emerged on the night of December 7, 1927. Mrs. Irv Malman was approached by two men while she was on her way home from work. They offered her a ride in their automobile, and, beat her, and both beat her viciously when she refused. On the evening of February 3, 1931, a young German woman named Katie Locks was sent to the hospital with severe head injuries. A man had attacked her with a, with a baseball bat, savagely beating her into unconsciousness. A man named Frank Miller was charged with that crime. One thing usually mentioned in conjunction with a Toledo clubber is the possibility of him being an arsonist. This wouldn't be particularly surprising, as a tendency to start fires is one of the early warning signs of a serial killer. The fires began in 1924, when within a few hours of each other, a number of fires broke out, doing millions of dollars in damages to several Toledo lumberyards. Two weeks later, a campaign of mail bombing took place and several buildings were demolished. Several fires, which were responsible for at least $575,000 in damages, which is the equivalent of about $8.5 million in 2018, swept through Toledo in a relatively short time. A yacht belonging to David Stevenson, a prominent former Klansman, was burnt in May. Stevenson blamed a feud with the Imperial Wizard, or nationwide president of the Klan, Hiram Wesley Evans. He took Evans to court over the suspected arson, but in the first hearing, Stevenson failed to appear. He was wanted on an outstanding rape and murder charge, for which he was convicted only three months later. And in a rescheduled hearing, Evans failed to appear. However, Evans may not have been to blame after all, because just three days after the attack on Mrs. Hatfield, May 27th, 
A fire decimated the Terminal Auditorium on Huron Street. On June 4th, two more massive fires broke out in the city, one consuming six boats to the Toledo docks on the Maumee River. The fire was so massive, it took over six hours for firefighters to extinguish the blaze. While the docks fire was being put down, a parking garage at the administration building of the Willis Overland Automobile Company, who constructed the first Jeeps during World War II, the administration building, by the way, was demolished in the 1970s, and the factory is now owned by Chrysler. With few, if any, firefighters available to respond, the fire in the parking garage raged out of control and destroyed over 165 cars before it was finally extinguished. Several more fires raged on November 23, 1926, during the second wave of panic following the murders of Lilydale Croy and Mary Alden. $250,000 in damages in all were incurred that day in seven separate fires. The C.A. Malk Lumber Company, the Banner Lumber Yards, the Street Department Stables, the Henry P. Stryker Contracting Company, an apartment building, and a train car, among others, all burned. In all instances, evidence of arson was to be found. A fire had also begun at the Citizens Ice Company. A man was seen leaving the boxcar a few moments before the fire broke out, but otherwise the police had no clues. On September 8, 1926, Detectives in St. Louis indicated that they would seek the death penalty for John Sexton, an escapee from a Mississippi prison who had lured several women to vacant homes and assaulted them. Sexton freely admitted to the assaults. The St. Louis police were in communication with Toledo, speculating that he may have been responsible for the club attacks there. On November 5, 1926, a 34-year-old man named John Helms was arrested on the request of some of his relatives, who said he had claimed to have killed three people in Toledo, the last near a schoolhouse. There was initial interest and a belief that he was referring to the murder of Lily Croy and two others. That suspicion was partly dispelled when the police actually began speaking to Helms. Highly dubious of the man's testimony after an interview, they soon determined to call into question Helms' sanity. Helms' wife, Lucy, admitted that her husband had been home all night the night of the Croy murder and thought that her husband only confessed due to the notoriety of the Clubber incidents. Both Lucy Helms and John's brother, Kenneth, felt that the man was demented. The very first article on the murder of Beulah Purvis is practically rolling in optimism. Girl's death may never be solved, it read. Keeping in mind that headline appeared literally the day after her body was found. Way to look on the bright side, guys. She was found October 23, 1926, in the Big Miami River, near Cleves, Ohio. The 19-year-old girl had been kicked to death and beaten with some sort of bludgeoning instrument, stripped of most of her clothing, and thrown into the river. August Beckman a sheriff's deputy investigating the case, predictably saw a possibility that the killer of Purvis could have been the Toledo cult clubber. The discovery of the Purvis body, remember, was around the same time as the murders of Lilydale Croy and Mary Alden. In the long run, 
a man named Joseph Carr was arrested for the murder, admitting that he had killed her beneath a bridge near the Valley Junction train station. He said he had beaten her with her own shoe until she fell unconscious, and when he could not revive her, he threw her into the river. Toledo detectives Lewis Hawes and John Quinn cleared Carr of having been the clubber, however. Carr was found insane and confined to the Lima State Hospital on January 22, 1927. In Hammond, Indiana, on October 4, 1927, a man named James Coiner was arrested for grave robbery, having dug up the body of Grace C. at Oak Hill Cemetery. Two young boys playing in a vacant house at Blaine Avenue and Standard Avenue found C.'s body in the cellar. The boys notified police, who kept an eye on the house, and Coiner was arrested when he returned to the basement. I never saw a skeleton before, and I wanted to see what it looked like. Coiner told police when arrested. While in prison on the grave robbery charge, investigators in Ferndale, Michigan, found four human skulls and bloody braids of hair in a trunk which had been left in a vacant house formerly rented by Coiner. He acknowledged to police that the trunk belonged to him, but denied knowledge of any of the contents. However, letters he attempted to smuggle out of prison addressed to a sister of his in Chicago alluded to what he termed something else. He repeatedly urged her to acquire the trunk from the Ferndale house, stating that there were things in the trunk which, if found, would make him through forever. Coiner, even when confronted with this evidence, shot back, I'm a defiant fellow. I could tell you a lot about murder and murderers if I wanted to, but you won't get anything out of me. He told officers that he had been in Toledo during the time of the clubber outrages. Warden Daly of the prison in Hammond, Indiana, where he was held as a grave robber, idly considered the possibility that Coiner could have been the Toledo Clubber, though he felt that this man simply had an obsession with grave robbing. It is highly possible, though, that Coiner took those skulls with him when he went to Michigan last summer, he said. In that case, he undoubtedly rifled over other graves in this locality. Once he got out of the Hammond jail, Coiner was little heard of for years until he made his way to his hometown of Cleveland, Mississippi in July 1934, and immediately began writing a series of obscene harassing letters to various women. As authorities were tracing the letters, one recipient of them, a Luella Turner, was shot along with her husband Aurelius, beaten with a hammer, and then the woman's body was horribly mutilated. One of the Turner's children had also been beaten. When authorities apprehended the writer of the letters to Mrs. Turner, they were surprised to capture Alonzo Robinson, a local who had been convicted of similar offenses, writing harassing messages, that is, not mutilation murders, 15 years before. James Coiner was merely an alias. More human hair, possibly from Mrs. Turner, was found in an envelope in Robinson's pocket, as were strips of human flesh cured into jerky. He freely admitted he was a sex pervert, which is considered to be the underlying cause for the crime. However, once taken into custody again, he said that he felt no more regrets, quote, than if I had spilled a glass of milk. What's bothering me right now is that this jailhouse is cold. Robinson, or Coiner, had been moved to a different jail out of fear of a public lynching. He was eventually tried and hung in 1935. Though he was often mentioned in connection with the clubber assaults, 
I find his guilt in that instance, anyway, to be doubtful in the extreme. Though it's true that Luell Turner had been beaten with a hammer, to the point of frenzy it was said, Robinson slash Coiner seems to have been mainly a necrophile, and seems to my mind a completely different sort of offender. An unknown man was arrested in Detroit on, November, on December 19, 1926, on suspicion of being the clubber. The apparently deranged individual had in his possession a locket, a heavy piece of iron, and a pair of steel pliers when arrested wandering around the Detroit waterfront. Another Detroit suspect emerged months later on March 18, 1927. The 48-year-old man's name was Edward Ballard, and that night he had clubbed an 11-year-old newsboy named William Trustman. The boy was bruised and had a broken leg, but it was believed he would recover. The ex-con, however, was shot while fleeing police and died the next day. Found in his possession, in addition to the baseball bat with which he attacked Trussman, was a pistol, several bullets, a short iron bar, some rope, and a notebook containing names and addresses of several Detroit children. The police had hoped to connect Ballard to the death a few days previous of Grace Loomis and the beating deaths of several children. Grace Loomis of Detroit had been killed on February 22nd. Dr. Frank Loomis returned to his home at about 8.30 p.m., left the house again half an hour later, and then returned at 9.45 to find his wife beaten to death in evidence that someone had apparently entered the house from the basement. Police arrested and questioned Dr. Loomis, but he was later released. However, by the end of May, and as should surprise no true crime aficionado, Dr. Loomis was once again charged with Grace's murder. So whatever may have been the case in regards to the child murders, Ballard was not the killer of Mrs. Loomis. But one of the more com compelling suspects, to my mind, came to light the following year. On May 19, 1928, a seven-year-old girl named Dorothy C. Legowski was kidnapped from her bed, the noise waking her sister, Leona, who ran to tell their father. Alex Sielagowski ran to the girl's room and, finding Dorothy missing, ran downstairs, where he saw a small, dark-collared automobile speeding away. Only a few minutes later, while making his way to the home of his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Felix Dobberzaniski, across the street, he found the body of Dorothy lying on their porch. The coroner declared that Dorothy had been assaulted and strangled. The automobile in which Dorothy was killed was found the next day, and in it police found the girl's fingerprints as well as extensive bloodstains. Investigation of the home revealed no sign of forced entry, and it was assumed the, ki the kidnapper made his entry with a key. Eventually, Dorothy's brother Stanley, who was 17 and had not even been present in the home that night, was arrested. He was later released. By May 30th, the real Slayer was in custody. Freely admitting to the murder was 26-year-old was Stanley Hopp, whose first name is often reported as Charles, husband of the Sielagowski's cousin, with whom he had also roomed at the house. He claimed to have committed the abduction and murder while under the influence of alcohol. Drunk from a wedding he had been attending, he made his way to the house, entered, and took Dorothy. He cut off no reason why. I was full of bootleg whiskey, and my recollection of the murder is vague. He said. 
It was found that his teeth fitted an impression of teeth found on Dorothy, and a dark suit stained with blood was found buried in the backyard. On July 7th, however, another confession was made and signed by Hop. I, Stanley Hop, confess voluntarily and without compulsion to being the individual who killed Lillian Croy. I also struck a woman about four years ago with an automobile crank, another I hit with a 2 by 4 and another with a bottle. After each attack, I ran away to where I was living. But Hop's plea of insanity fell on deaf ears, and on July 16th he was sentenced to death by Judge Charles Milroy. Hop de died in the electric chair at Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus on November 30th of that year. So was it Hop who was guilty of the Toledo Clubber attacks? I do believe that he very well may have been guilty of at least the Croy assault, and perhaps the others as well, since all indications seem to be that sexual assault was the intent, even if the Croy case was the only one in which it was successfully carried out. And while I'm not certain exactly where the Seelagowskis and thus Hop lived, it seems to have been somewhere in the predominantly Polish neighborhood known as Kuschwantz. Kuschwantz is directly adjacent to the murder zone, and St. Anthony's Church, where Lily Dale Croy's purse was found discarded, is almost in the center of the neighborhood. To me, he's certainly the most plausible of any named suspects. And that's the end of this episode. A list of the sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. <laughs>